You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. Find a link there to send me a message, and you'll also find a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. If you missed the previous episode, this is a somewhat of a continuation. It's a continuation in the underlying topic, though it does stand alone with its own specific stories. But uh, in the previous episode, a disservice to the public and the environment, we heard about big tobacco, big sugar, big sludge, big auto, and a few of their deceits, a few of their obfuscations, a few of their outright lies um, to promote their products, to hide the harms of their products, and to to literally deceive us to death as users and consumers of their products. And we're going to hear some more stories about that from some other industries and and these really only scratch the surface every major industry that produces a product that we consume that we use on a regular basis if that industry has been around for any significant length of time there are going to be instances like these in the history of that industry instances of that industry using public relations, using propaganda to hide the facts, the negative facts about their product, to confuse us about the evidence that their product is causing harm. We're going to look at chemical companies. We're going to look at pharmaceutical companies. We're going to look at big oil and Exxon about the harms that their products produce to us and to the world, to the environment. First up in this episode is one part of a multi-part expose published at Inside Climate News. That's at InsideClimateNews.org about Exxon and about what they knew and when they knew it. This is by Neela Banerjee and Lisa Song and David Hasemeyer. This is published in 2015. At a meeting in Exxon Corporation's headquarters, a senior company scientist named James F. Black addressed an audience of powerful oil men. Speaking without a text as he flipped through detailed slides, Black delivered a sobering message. Carbon dioxide from the world's use of fossil fuels would warm the planet and could eventually endanger humanity. Quote, 
In the first place, there is general scientific agreement that the most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate is through carbon dioxide release from the burning of fossil fuels, Black told Exxon's management committee, according to a written version he recorded later. It was July 1977 when Exxon's leaders received this blunt assessment, well before most of the world had heard of the looming crisis. A year later, Black, a top technical expert in Exxon's research and and engineering division, took an updated version of his presentation to a broader audience. He warned Exxon scientists and managers that independent researchers estimated a doubling of the carbon dioxide CO2 concentration in the atmosphere would increase average global temperatures by 2 to 3 degrees Celsius, or 4 to 5 degrees Fahrenheit, and as much as 10 degrees Celsius, or 18 degrees Fahrenheit, at the poles. Rainfall might get heavier in some regions, and other places might turn to desert. Some countries would benefit, but others would have their agricultural output reduced or destroyed, Black said in the written summary of his 1978 talk. His presentations reflected uncertainty running through scientific circles about the details of climate change, such as the role the oceans played in absorbing emissions. Still, Black estimated quick action was needed. Present thinking, he wrote in the 1978 summary, holds that man has a time window of five to ten years before the need for hard decisions regarding changes in energy strategies might become critical. Exxon responded swiftly. Within months, the company launched its own extraordinary research into carbon dioxide from fossil fuels and its impact on the Earth. Exxon's ambitious program included both empirical CO2 sampling and rigorous climate modeling. It assembled a brain trust that would spend more than a decade deepening the company's understanding of an environmental problem that posed an existential threat to the oil business. Then, towards the end of the 1980s, Exxon curtailed its carbon dioxide research. In the decades that followed, Exxon worked instead at the forefront of climate denial. It put its muscle behind efforts to manufacture doubt about the reality of global warming its own scientists had once confirmed. It lobbied to block federal and international action to control greenhouse gas emissions. It helped to erect a vast edifice of misinformation that stands to this day. This untold chapter in Exxon's history, when one of the world's largest energy companies worked to understand the damage caused by fossil fuels, stems from an eight-month investigation by Inside Climate News. ICN's reporters interviewed former Exxon employees, scientists, and federal officials, and consulted hundreds of pages of internal Exxon documents, many of them written between 1977 and 1986, during the heyday of Exxon's innovative climate research program. ICN combed through the thousands of documents from archives, including those held at the University of Texas, Austin, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The documents record budget requests, research priorities, and debates over findings, and reveal the arc of Exxon's internal attitudes and work on climate, and how much attention the results received. Of particular significance 
was a project launched in August 1979, when the company outfitted a supertanker with custom-made instruments. The project's mission was to sample carbon dioxide in the air and ocean along a route from the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf. In 1980, Exxon assembled a team of climate modelers who investigated fundamental questions about the climate sensitivity to the buildup of carbon dioxide in the air. Working with university scientists and the U.S. Department of Energy, Exxon strove to be on the cutting edge of inquiry into what was then called the greenhouse effect. Exxon's early determination to understand rising carbon dioxide levels grew out of a corporate culture of farsightedness, former employees said. They described a company that continuously examined risks to its bottom line, including environmental factors. In the 1970s, Exxon modeled its research division after Bell Labs, staffing it with highly accomplished scientists and engineers. In written responses to questions about the history of its research, ExxonMobil spokesman Richard D. Kyle said that from the time that climate change first emerged as a topic for scientific study and analysis in the late 1970s, ExxonMobil has committed itself to scientific, fact-based analysis of this important issue. At all times, he said, the opinions and conclusions of our scientists and researchers on this topic have been solidly within the mainstream of consensus scientific opinion of the day and our work had been guided by an overarching principle to follow where the science leads. The risk of climate change is real and warrants action. At the outset of its climate investigations almost four decades ago, many Exxon executives, middle managers, and scientists armed themselves with a sense of urgency and mission. One manager at Exxon Research, Harold N. Weinberg, shared his grandiose thoughts about Exxon's potential role in the climate research in a March 1978 internal company memorandum that read, This may be the kind of opportunity that we are looking for to have Exxon technology, management, and leadership resources put into the context of a project aimed at benefiting mankind. His sentiment was echoed by Henry Shaw, the scientist leading the company's nascent carbon dioxide research effort. Exxon must develop a credible scientific team that can critically evaluate the information generated on the subject and be able to carry bad news, if any, to the corporation, Shaw wrote to his boss, Edward E. David, the president of Exxon Research and Engineering, in 1978. This team must be recognized for its excellence in the scientific community, the government, and internally by Exxon management. Exxon budgeted more than $1 million over three years for the tanker project to measure how quickly the oceans were taking in CO2. It was a small fraction of Exxon's research annual $300 million budget. But the question the scientists tackled was one of the biggest uncertainties in climate science. How quickly could the deep oceans absorb atmospheric CO2? If Exxon could pinpoint the answer, it would know how long it had before CO2 accumulation in the atmosphere could force a transition away from fossil fuels. Exxon also hired scientists and mathematicians to develop better climate models and publish research results in peer-reviewed journals. By 1982, the company's own scientists, collaborating with outside researchers, created rigorous climate models, computer programs that simulate the workings of the climate to assess the impact of emissions on global temperatures. 
they confirmed an emerging scientific consensus that warming could be even worse than Black had warned five years earlier. Exxon's research laid the groundwork for a 1982 corporate primer on carbon dioxide and climate change prepared by its Environmental Affairs Office. Marked not to be distributed externally, it contained information that, quote, has been given wide circulation to Exxon management. In it, the company recognized, despite the many lingering unknowns, that heading off global warming would require major reductions in fossil fuel combustion. Unless that happened, there are some potentially catastrophic events that must be considered, the primer said, citing independent experts. Once the effects are measurable, they may not be reversible. Like others in the scientific community, Exxon researchers acknowledge the uncertainties surrounding many aspects of climate science, especially in the area of forecasting models. But they saw those uncertainties as questions they wanted to address, not as an excuse to dismiss what was increasingly understood. Models are controversial, Roger Cohen, head of theoretical sciences at Exxon Corporate Research Laboratories, and his colleague, Richard Wertham, senior technology advisor at Exxon Corporation, wrote in a May 1980 status report on Exxon's climate modeling program. Therefore, there are research opportunities for us. When Exxon's researchers confirmed information the company might find troubling, they did not sweep it under the rug. Over the past several years, a clear scientific consensus has emerged, Cohen wrote in September 1982, reporting on Exxon's own analysis of climate models. It was that a doubling of the carbon dioxide blanket in the atmosphere would produce average global warming of 3 degrees Celsius plus or minus 1.5 degrees Celsius, equal to 5 degrees Fahrenheit plus or minus 1.7 degrees there is unanimous agreement in the scientific community that a temperature increase of this magnitude would bring about significant changes in the Earth's climate, he wrote, including rainfall distribution and alterations in the biosphere. He warned that publication of the company's conclusions might attract media attention because of the connection between Exxon's major business and the role of fossil fuel combustion in contributing to the increase of atmospheric CO2. Nevertheless, he recommended publication. Our ethical responsibility is to permit the publication of our research in the scientific literature, Cohen wrote. Indeed, to do otherwise would be a breach of Exxon's public position and ethical credo on honesty and integrity. Exxon followed his advice. Between 1983 and 1984, its researchers published their results in at least three peer-reviewed papers in Journal of the Atmospheric Sciences, and American Geophysical Union monograph. David, the head of Exxon Research, told a global warming conference financed by Exxon in October 1982 that, quote, few people doubt that the world has entered an energy transition away from dependence upon fossil fuels and towards some mix of renewable resources that will not pose problems of CO2 accumulation. The only question, he said, was how fast this would happen. But the challenge did not daunt him. I'm generally upbeat about the chances of coming through this most adventurous of all human experiments with the ecosystem, David said. Exxon considered itself unique among corporations for its carbon dioxide and climate research. 
the company boasted in a January 1981 report scoping study on CO2 that no other company appeared to be conducting similar in-house research into carbon dioxide, and it swiftly gained a reputation among outsiders for genuine expertise. We are very pleased with Exxon's research intentions related to the CO2 question. This represents very responsible action, which we hope will serve as a model for research contributions from the corporate sector, said David Slade, manager of the federal government's carbon dioxide research program at the Energy Department in a May 1979 letter to Shaw. This is truly a national and international service. In the early 1980s, Exxon researchers often repeated that unbiased science would give it legitimacy in helping shape climate-related laws that would affect its profitability. Still, corporate executives remained cautious about what they told Exxon shareholders about global warming and the role petroleum played in causing it. A review of federal filings shows. The company did not elaborate on the carbon problem in annual reports filed with securities regulators during the height of its CO2 research. Nor did it mention in those filings that concern over CO2 was beginning to influence business decisions it was facing. Throughout the 1980s, the company was worried about developing an enormous gas field off the coast of Indonesia because of the vast amount of CO2 the unusual reservoir would release. Exxon was also concerned about reports that synthetic oil made from coal, tar sands, and oil shales could significantly boost CO2 emissions. The company was banking on sin fuels to meet growing demand for energy in the future in a world it believed was running out of conventional oil. In the mid-1980s, after an unexpected oil glut caused prices to collapse, Exxon cut its staff deeply to save money, including many working on climate. But the climate change problem remained, and it was becoming a more prominent part of the political landscape. Global warming has begun, expert tells Senate, declared the headline of a June 1988 New York Times article describing the congressional testimony of NASA's James Hansen, a leading climate expert. Hansen's statements compelled Senator Tim Wirth to declare during the hearing that Congress must begin to consider how we are going to slow or halt that warming trend. With alarm bells suddenly ringing, Exxon started financing efforts to amplify doubt about the state of climate science. Exxon helped to found and lead the Global Climate Coalition, an alliance of some of the world's largest companies seeking to halt government efforts to curb fossil fuel emissions. Exxon used the American Petroleum Institute, right-wing think tanks, campaign contributions, and its own lobbying to push a narrative that climate science was too uncertain to necessitate cuts in fossil fuel emissions. As the international community moved in 1997 to take a first step in curbing emissions with the Kyoto Protocol, Exxon's chairman and CEO Lee Raymond argued to stop it. Quote, Let's agree there's a lot we really don't know about how climate will change in the 21st century and beyond, Raymond said in his speech before the World Petroleum Congress in Beijing in October 1997. We need to understand the issue better, and fortunately, we have time, he said. It is highly unlikely that the temperature in the middle of the next century will be significantly affected, whether policies are enacted now or 20 years from now. 
Over the years, several Exxon scientists who had confirmed the climate consensus during its early research, including Cohen and David, took Raymond's side, publishing views that ran contrary to the scientific mainstream. Exxon's about-face on climate change earned the scorn of the scientific establishment it had once courted. In 2006, the Royal Society, the United Kingdom's Science Academy, sent a harsh letter to Exxon accusing it of being inaccurate and misleading on the question of climate uncertainty. Bob Ward, the Academy's senior manager for policy communication, demanded that Exxon stop giving money to dozens of organizations he said were actively distorting the science. In 2008, under mounting pressure from activist shareholders, the company announced it would end support for some prominent groups, such as those Ward had identified. Still, the millions of dollars Exxon had spent since the 1990s on climate change deniers had long surpassed what it had once invested in its path-breaking climate science aboard the Esso Atlantic. They spent so much money, and they were the only company that did this kind of research, as far as I know, Edward Garvey, who was a key researcher on Exxon's oil tanker project, said in a recent interview with Inside Climate News and Frontline. That was an opportunity not just to get a place at the table, but to lead, in many respects, some of the discussion. And the fact that they chose not to do that into the future is a sad point. Michael Mann, director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, who has been a frequent target of climate deniers, said that inaction just like actions have consequences. When he recently spoke to Inside Climate News, he was unaware of this chapter in Exxon's history. All it would have taken is for one prominent fossil fuel CEO to know this was about more than just shareholder profits and a question about our legacy, he said. But now, because of the cost of inaction, what I call the procrastination penalty, we face a far more uphill battle. Once again, this was part one of a six-part series on Exxon's actions and activities around climate change and the current climate crisis. And with more on Exxon and climate crisis, uh, here's an excerpt from a piece published at BBC.com, written by Phoebe Keen. Kurt Davies has scoured through Exxon's archive. He used to work as a research director at the environmental pressure group Greenpeace, where he looked into corporate opposition to climate change. This inspired him to set up the Climate Investigation Center. He explains why this Exxon presentation mattered. They're worried the public will take this on and enact radical changes in the way we use energy and affect their business. That's the bottom line. He says this fear can also be seen in another document from the archive that sets out the so-called Exxon position, which was to emphasize the uncertainty regarding climate change. Researchers argue this was just the start of a decades-long campaign to shape public opinion and to spread doubt about climate change. In June 2020, the Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, sued ExxonMobil, the American Petroleum Institute, and Koch Industries for misleading the public over climate change. The lawsuit claims that, quote, previously unknown internal documents confirm that the defendant well understood the devastating effects that their products would cause to the climate. 
says that despite this knowledge, the industry, quote, engaged in a public relations campaign that was not only false, but also highly effective, which served to deliberately undermine the science of climate change. The accusations against Exxon and others, which the company has called baseless and without, without merit, build on years of painstaking research by people like Kurt Davies and Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard University and co-author of Merchants of Doubt. Rather than accept the scientific evidence, they made the decision to fight the facts, she said. But this isn't just about Exxon's past actions. In the same year as the Levine presentation, 1989, many energy companies and fossil fuel-dependent industries came together to form the Global Climate Coalition, which aggressively lobbied U.S. politicians and media. Then in 1991, the trade body that represents electrical companies in the U.S., the Edison Electric Institute, created a campaign called the Information Council for the Environment, or ICE, which aimed to reposition global warming as theory, not fact. Some details of the campaign were leaked to the New York Times. They ran advertising campaigns designed to undermine public support, cherry-picking the data to say, well, if the world is warming up, why is Kentucky getting colder? They asked the rhetorical questions designed to create confusion to create doubt, argued Naomi Oreskes. The ICE campaign identified two groups which would be most susceptible to its messaging. The first was older, lesser-educated males from larger households who are not typically information seekers. The second group was younger, low-income women who could be targeted with bespoke adverts which would liken those who talked about climate change to a hysterical doomsaying cartoon chicken. The Edison Electric Institute didn't respond to questions about ICE, but told the BBC that its members are, quote, leading a clean energy transformation and are united in their commitment to get the energy they provide as clean as they can, as fast as they can. But back in the 1990s, there were many campaigns like this. Unless climate change becomes a non-issue, says another, leaked to the New York Times in 1997, there may be no moment when we can declare victory. To achieve victory, the industry planned to identify, recruit, and train a team of five independent scientists to participate in media outreach. The important tactic assumed the public would be suspicious if oil industry executives dismissed climate change, but might trust the views of seemingly independent scientists. These would be put forward to take part in debates on TV, potentially confusing a general audience who would see opposing scientists in white coats arguing about complex technical details without knowing who to believe. The problem was sometimes these white coats weren't truly independent. Some climate skeptic researchers were taking money from the oil industry. Drexel University Emeritus Professor Bob Brule studied the funding for climate change counter-movement. He identified 91 institutions, which he says either denied or downplayed the risks of climate change, including the Cato Institute and the now-defunct George C. Marshall Institute. He found that between 2003 and 2007, ExxonMobil gave $7.2 million to such bodies, while between 2008 and 2010, the American Petroleum Institute trade body donated just under $4 million. In its 2007 Corporate Citizenship Report, ExxonMobil said it would stop funding such groups in 2008. Of course, many researchers would argue such money doesn't influence their climate contrarian work. It seems some may have been motivated by something else. 
Most of the organizations opposing or denying climate change science were right-wing think tanks who tended to be passionately anti-regulation. These groups made convenient allies for the oil industry as they would argue against action on climate change on ideological grounds. This ideological divide has had far-reaching consequences. Polls conducted in May 2020 showed that just 22% of Americans who voted Republican believed climate change is man-made, compared with 72% of Democrats. Unfortunately, many of the expert scientists quoted by journalists to try to offer balance in their coverage of climate change were, like Jerry Taylor, making arguments based on their beliefs rather than relevant research. Usually, these people have some scientific credentials, but they're not actually experts in climate science, says Harvard historian Naomi Oreskes. She began digging into the background of leading climate skeptics, including Fred Seitz, a nuclear physicist and former president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. She found he was deeply anti-communist, believing any government intervention in the marketplace, quote, would put us on the slippery slope to socialism. She also discovered that he had been active in the debates around smoking in the 1980s. That was a eureka moment. We realized this was not a scientific debate. A person with expertise about climate change would in no way be an expert about oncology or public health or cardiovascular disease or any of the key issues associated with tobacco. The fact that the same people were arguing in both cases was a clue that something fishy was going on. That's what led us to discover this pattern of disinformation that gets systemically used again and again. Naomi Oreska spent years going through the tobacco archive at the University of California at San Francisco, contains more than 14 million documents that were made available thanks to litigation against U.S. tobacco firms. A strikingly familiar story emerged. Decades before the energy industry tried to undermine the case for climate change, tobacco companies had used the same techniques to challenge the emerging links between smoking and lung cancer in the 1950s. And this article goes on to detail some of that battle and that struggle and that propaganda put out by the tobacco industry to maintain their profits for as long as possible. Next up is a piece published at truthout.org from the tobacco companies to Big Pharma. This piece is written by Martha Rosenberg. When a prescription drug causes risky side effects, the word often doesn't get out for years, allowing Big Pharma to make money anyway. The FDA and Big Pharma contend that dangerous side effects in a prescription drug only emerge when it is used by millions instead of the relatively small group of people in clinical trials. But there is another reason the public ends up guinea pigs. Prescription drugs are rushed to market in as little as six months so industry can start making money while safety is still being determined. Both Merck's risk-laden bone drug Fosamax and painkiller Vioxx were on the market after six-month review. In the case of Vioxx, it was because, quote, the drug potentially provided a significant therapeutic advantage over existing approved drugs, the FDA said. Thanks for that, and five drugs, Trovan, Resulin, Posicor, Duract, and Merida, Meridia 
rushed through in 1977 because of pharma and congressional pressure on the FDA, says Public Citizen, were subsequently withdrawn. Here are some drugs whose risks did not keep them from getting their, quote, patents worth. Singular. You'd think Merck would have learned from Vioxx and Fosamax that aggressive marketing can only hide emerging risks for so long. It didn't. Or maybe maybe the lesson it learned was, despite emerging risks, the profit that they make more than overcompensates for any financial hit taken when a drug has to be recalled or when lawsuits or fines are put in place. To sell its asthma and allergy drug Singular to children, the drug giant partnered with Olympic gold medalist swimmer Peter Vanderkay and Scholastic and the American Academy of Pediatrics, even as the FDA warned about neuropsychiatric events, including agitation, aggression, nightmares, depression, insomnia, and suicidal thinking. While Merck marketed Singular, which comes in a cherry-flavored chewable formulation to parents with slogans like Singular is made with kids in mind, Fox TV and over 200 parents on the website Ask a Patient reported that children on Singular exhibited altered moods, depression, and ADHD, hyperkinesis, and suicidal symptoms. 15-year-old Cody Miller of Queensbury, New York, reportedly took his own life days after taking the drug in 2008. Still, Singular made $5 billion for the company in 2010. After its patent expired in 2012, Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration, the FDA's counterpart, reported 58 cases of adverse psychiatric events in children and teenagers, primarily suicidal thinking. Zyprexa. How do you sell a drug that causes 30% of users to gain 22 pounds and some to gain as much as 100 pounds? By burying the risks. This antipsychotic Zyprexa was supposed to be Eli Lilly's follow-up to its blockbuster antidepressant Prozac, even though Lilly knew as early as 1995, according to the New York Times, that Zyprexa was linked to unmanageable weight gain or diabetes. Zyprexa's side effects of, quote, weight gain and possible hyperglycemia is a major threat to the long-term success of this critically important molecule, wrote Lilly's Alan Breyer, who later became chief medical officer in documents obtained by the Times. Even as Lilly settled charges that it withheld the drug's link to high blood sugar levels and diabetes and illegally marketed the drug for dementia, Zyprexia made $5 billion in 2010 and out-earned Prozac, who says crime doesn't pay. Zyprexa was especially marketed to the poor and became one of the nation's top Medicaid drugs, extracting at least $1.3 billion of our tax dollars in 2005 alone. In 2008, Lilly settled an Alaskan suit to cover the cost of Medicaid patients who developed diabetes on Zyprexa. Unbelievably, maybe believably, Lilly offered a free service to, quote, help states buy mental illness drugs like Zyprexa, as a fox guards the hen house and 20 states took the bait. Zyprexa's patent ran out in 2012. Siroquel. Like Zyprexa, the antipsychotic Siroquel, made by the UK firm AstraZeneca, became a best-selling medication in the US, earning over $5 billion in 2010, despite frequently reported risks. 
It was so heavily marketed to poor children that in 2007, Florida's Department of Juvenile Justice bought twice as much Soroquel as Advil. Soroquel's high use in the military for the unapproved uses of sleep and PTSD was also disturbing. Reports of veterans' sudden deaths on the drug, thought to be cardiac-related, surfaced even as use of Soroquel soared 700% in the Department of Defense. In 2009, it was the number two drug at the VA, counting for $125.4 million in tax dollars. Months after Soroquel's 1997 approval, an article in the South Dakota Journal of Medicine raised questions about the drug's unsafe interaction with 11 other drugs. Within three years, researchers at the Cleveland Clinic were questioning Soroquel's effect on the heart's electrical activity. But even as the families of deceased veterans testified at FDA hearings in 2009 and demanded answers from officials and lawmakers, the FDA maintained Soroquel's safety. Then in 2011, with little fanfare, the FDA issued new warnings that corroborated the swirling suspicions. Both Soroquel and its extended release version should be avoided in combination with at least 12 other medicines, said the FDA. The drug should also be avoided in the elderly and people with heart disease because of clear cardiac risks. Oops. Soroquel's patent ran out the following year. Leviquin. Fluoroquinolone antibiotics are among the biggest selling drug classes. Many people remember the fluoroquinolone Cipro, given for 9-11 era anthrax attacks. But pharma hopes we don't remember the fluoroquinolones Trovan, which was withdrawn for causing liver damage, and Raxar, which was withdrawn for causing cardiac events and sudden death. Johnson & Johnson's fluoroquinolone Leviquin was the U.S.'s best-selling antibiotic in 2010, with sales over a $1 billion a year, but is now the subject of thousands of lawsuits. In 2012, a year after Leviquin's patent expired, a cascade of side effects began to emerge with Leviquin and the whole class of fluoroquinolones that cast doubt about their safety. The Journal of the American Medical Association reported that 4,384 patients diagnosed with retinal detachment, 445, 10%, were exposed to a fluoroquinolone in the year before diagnosis. The New England Journal of Medicine reported the same year that Leviquin was linked to an increased risk of cardiovascular death, especially sudden death from heart rhythm disturbances. While the FDA warned of tendon ruptures on fluoroquinolones, especially Achilles tendons in 2008, and added a black box warning on the label, it had a serious new warning two years after Leviquin went off patent. In 2013, the FDA warned about the, quote, serious side effect of peripheral neuropathy in fluoroquinolonus type of nerve damage in which sensory pathways are impaired. Peripheral neuropathy caused by fluoroquinolonus, like Leviquin, can occur soon after these drugs are taken and may be permanent, warned the FDA. Fluoroquinolones are also linked to Clostridium difficile, also called C. diff, a serious and potentially deadly intestinal microbe. Topamax. Before its patent expired in 2009, the seizure drug Topamax made Johnson & Johnson a billion dollars a year, and it still made $538 million a year after its patent expiration. 
Topamax was such a favorite for pain conditions in the military, it was given the nickname Stupamax for the way it slowed reaction times and impaired motor skills, attention, and memory, according to Army Times. Not too great for combat. A year before Topamax went off patent, FDA warned that it and other seizure drugs are correlated with suicide and asked their manufacturers to add label warnings. Four patients on the drugs killed themselves versus none on placebo, reported the FDA after reviewing clinical trials. Then in 2011, the FDA announced that Topamax can cause the birth defects cleft lip and cleft palate in babies of mothers who take the drugs. Before starting Topiramate, pregnant women and women of childbearing potential should discuss other treatment options with their healthcare professional. The FDA warned, though the risks did not stop the FDA from approving a new diet drug containing Topamax's generic drug in 2012. OxyContin Purdue Pharma's OxyContin is the granddaddy of drugs that make money despite lethal side effects. Along with other prescription opioids, it accounted for an astounding 17,000 deaths last year, four times that in 2003. The increase in use has been fueled in part by doctors and pain advocacy organizations that receive money from drug companies and make misleading claims about the safety and effectiveness of opioids, including that addiction is rare, reported the journal Sentinel. The American Geriatric Society used pharma-linked experts to rewrite clinical guidelines in 2009, says this journal Sentinel, which specified opioids for all patients with moderate to severe pain as opposed to Aleve or Advil. Ka-ching. OxyContin, because it is a long-acting formulation, was supposed to reduce toxicities and addictiveness at least until its crush, snort, and shoot potential made it more popular than cocaine on the street. In 2010, responding to the addictions, overdoses, deaths, and diversions associated with the drug, Purdue rolled out a tamper-resistant OxyContin, began to push for state and federal laws requiring opioids to be tamper-resistant in 2012. Purdue said public health was its main concern, but many are asking why that concern only surfaced as OxyContin's patent was expiring. Its patent expired in 2013. And the whole Purdue and OxyContin story and obfuscation of health risks and tremendous harms that this drug was doing uh, at when it was available and when it was prescribed and when it was misprescribed and overprescribed has been well documented in many forms books have been written about it um you know probably hundreds if not thousands of articles have been written about it movies have been made about it there's a great series called dope sick that was made about it um that really shows a little bit of kind of behind the scenes in the boardroom as well as direct impacts on individuals and from big pharma we go to big chemical there have been a lot of chemicals historically that have been used without sufficient testing and without rapid response to their harms that they caused um silent spring the the famous book by rachel carson 
covered a number of these uh, pesticides, herbicides that cause the tremendous harm to the environment and wildlife and humans. Plastics, as shown in, in the last episode, um, the misrepresentation of plastics recycling, the ubiquitousness of microplastics and nanoplastics in the environment and in the human body. A few decades ago, we had the gasoline additive MTBE, which was super water soluble and contaminated water tables, you know, around gas stations all across the nation. Um, you know, chemicals, the, our, our, our whole concept of chemical safety is backwards. We don't use the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle would say you do not release a new chemical until you can prove that it is not harmful. Until you have done enough studies to have a high confidence that harms will be minimal or, or non-existent. And that's not what we do. We do preliminary tests, if any tests at all. Uh, corporations do their own testing on their own chemicals and report that testing to regulatory agencies for approval. Those um, substances are approved without sufficient follow-up analysis and testing and without, you know, a, a, a mindset of prove that this is not harmful. Um, the mindset is just let's release something because we haven't proven that it is harmful. So let's release something and then study it in the marketplace. As we just saw with that list of drugs, small list of drugs of which, you know, could be probably multiplied a hundredfold if someone really had the time to dig into it, that were released some with known side effects, some with unknown side effects or unknown interactions. And then after the companies made billions of dollars of profit or billions of dollars of sales off of those drugs, then an, another round of kind of restriction or regulation or, you know, um, warnings have been placed upon those things after the harm is done. This should not be the way that we manage these kinds of substances. Now we have massive contamination with what is known as forever chemicals, um, PFAS and PFOA um, across the country and really around the world. And again, in all of our bodies, virtually everyone has PFAS or PFOA contamination in their body because these chemical substances are so ubiquitous in the environment. Here's an article written by Rebecca Burns, published at levernews.com. The manufacturers of forever chemicals used in products like nonstick pans and waterproof clothing knew about the dangers their materials posed more than 40 years before the general public according to previously secret industry documents. By following the same playbook as Big Tobacco, and Big Almost Anything, including suppression of their own research, 
The company successfully stymied regulation for decades, while the cancer-causing chemicals became ubiquitous in the water, air, and soil. Major manufacturers are already spending billions to settle lawsuits and millions fighting federal regulations, including landmark environmental rules proposed this spring. The revealing industry documents analyzed in a new study from researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, could bolster efforts to hold the companies accountable for widespread contamination from chemicals that take hundreds of years to break down. The manufacturer 3M is reportedly preparing to pay $10 billion to settle claims that it polluted thousands of public water systems. But the cost of cleaning up the chemicals in drinking water nationwide will likely top $400 billion. Introduced into a variety of consumer goods beginning in the 1950s, per and polyfluoroalkyl compounds, or PFAS, are linked to decreased fertility, developmental delays, and several types of cancer. While the human health risks became widely known during the last decade, manufacturers have known since at least 1970 that the compounds were, quote, highly toxic when inhaled and moderately toxic when ingested, according to industry documents obtained through litigation and reviewed by public health researchers at UCSF. State officials and consumer groups are urging the Environmental Protection Agency to finalize the first-ever enforceable standards for PFAS in drinking water after decades of deferring to industry groups. Two major manufacturers, 3M and DuPont, reported spending a combined total of more than $3.8 million lobbying on chemical issues, including PFAS regulation last year. Meanwhile, dozens of states are currently considering legislation banning their use in everyday products. Exposure to PFAS is so widespread that the CDC estimates the chemicals are present in the blood of 97% of Americans. A growing wave of litigation, including lawsuits brought by the Attorneys General of New Mexico and Washington last week, centers on allegations that DuPont, 3M, and other manufacturers knew or should have known about the potential harms caused by their products. The newly available documents reviewed by UCSF researchers established that not only did manufacturers know about these risks, they took steps to cover them up. During the 1970s, a DuPont-funded laboratory carried out a series of studies to test the effects of exposure to the chemical coating Teflon. The laboratory had already established that Teflon dispersions could be highly toxic when inhaled, according to a 1970 DuPont memo. Subsequent tests found that rats exposed at low levels developed in large livers. Dogs injected with higher ones died within two days. But instead of reporting these findings to federal regulators as required by law, the company adopted a communication strategy equating the toxicity of the chemicals to common table salt. By 1980, employee surveys by DuPont and 3M found that pregnant workers exposed to the chemicals were giving birth to babies with abnormalities in their eyes and tear ducts. While assuring workers that they had discovered no evidence of birth defects, the company quietly removed female employees from high-exposure areas. In the subsequent decades, as evidence of adverse effects mounted, the companies pressured regulators to help them mitigate the fallout. 
after a panel of outside experts submitted recommendations to the EPA in 2006 that called PFAS a likely human carcinogen and urged adoption of stricter regulations. DuPont's vice president wrote to company executives with a plan to control the narrative. Quote, the only voice that can cut through the negative stories is the voice of the EPA, reads a February 2006 email. The email went on to list proposed talking points for the agency, including that consumer products using Teflon were safe for continued use. The EPA appears to have obliged, telling consumers in March 2006 that they did not need to stop using their nonstick products. This March, the EPA proposed groundbreaking regulations setting limits on PFAS compounds in drinking water, though those limits are still higher than what many public health advocates say is safe to drink. 3M and the Chamores Company, which spun off from DuPont in 2015, both submitted comments opposing the rules, which are expected to be finalized next year. The UCSF study's authors compare the chemical company's tactics to Big Tobacco's decades-long campaign to bury unfavorable research and sow misinformation in public health discourse. Quote, Like Big Tobacco, the major chemical manufacturers have vested financial interests in suppressing scientific evidence of the harms of their products while maintaining the public's perception that their products are safe, according to the study. The U.S.'s failure to shift the burden of proof to the industry with respect to chemical policy means that we may always be chasing the devil they knew rather than defending public health from the outset. And, and that's it in a nutshell. Industry after industry after industry has followed this same playbook to hide and to minimize the knowledge, the awareness of the harms that their products do to people and to the environment so that they can continue to make profit. They're deceiving us so they can boost their bottom line and they're deceiving us to death. And so what's the antidote? The government, the government won't do it. A robust government regulation is probably the biggest opportunity to change things and to control this. But we have regulatory capture. We have the companies, the corporations, and the businesses guiding the regulatory industries, producing the reports to the regulatory industries of the risks. There, there needs to be independent analysis of chemicals, of all products for potential harms, not let me see your internal analysis for this new chemical that you created that has a positive impact on something. Let me see that. Let me see what you have studied that shows that it's safe. Well, of course, you're only going to show me the studies that show that it's safe, even when there are laws that say you must reveal, you must release all of the results of the studies. You must release the negative results. It's not working. It's not functional. So the people have to step in and step up and it's happening uh people are out there they're protesting they're calling on their 
elected officials to try to do the right thing. And that works. It's really tough, but it works. And the, the, the climate crisis is, is a key area right now. One of the biggest issues facing us all. And there are some amazing groups out there putting themselves on the line, going to jail to raise awareness, to, to put pressure on the regulatory agencies, to put pressure on the governments to take the right steps to help make us safer, to help protect the planet in the future. That shouldn't be required, but it is required. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now here's more on what action it's going to take from all of us to make real change in our society. This is Utah Phillips with your moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. One of the first times I talked to Judy Berry on the phone and I had never met her, I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying. It's being killed. The people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently, my vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacation, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when they're hauled away to jail, other people take their place. Surround them, put them in jail. Oh yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like, at, like in uh, Montreal, um, like at Genoa. They're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete. We've got them in prison, we've got to understand that they're afraid of us all right let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain 